the volume. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Boxing with Chris Mannix is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, There is a contest for every fan. FanDuel. More ways to win. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to another episode of Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. We have a terrific show for you today. A lot of news in boxing right now. No better person to run through it all with than Keith Idex, senior writer for BoxingScene.com. A little bit later on, Shakur Stevenson, the U.S. Olympic silver medalist, the 126-pound champion. He is going for another title, this time at 130 pounds on Saturday when he takes on Jamel Herring. I talked to Shakur about that fight and much more. As always, best way to support this podcast, get over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review. It's the best way to make sure we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to the show. All right, Keith Eideck is here. Back again, senior writer, BoxingScene.com. Keith is in Atlanta for this weekend's Jamel Herring, Shakur Stevenson, 130-pound title fight. Um, I know, Keith, much to your surprise, I'm not there. Um, I may have intimated I was planning on going, but uh, life just keeps getting in the way, Keith. Just keeps getting in the way. Well, what I do know is that they have a sticker with your name on it all ready to go for <laughs> Saturday night, you know? In case, in case, I, in case yeah. I send the uh, the bat signal up to Evan Korn with top rank and say uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm on my way down. We're going to get into Stevenson Herring. Interesting weigh-in on Thursday, or rather press conference on Thursday uh, between Stevenson and Herring. It's a terrific fight. We'll talk more about it. I want to begin the show, though, Keith, looking back to last weekend. Mikey Garcia four division world champion, a guy that for 
you know, many of the last few years has been either on or around uh, pound-for-pound lists. Uh, He was coming off a 20-month layoff and taking a tune-up fight. He was facing Sandor Martin, who had never fought at the world level, had a couple of losses to mid-level fighters on his resume. A lot of people, myself included, believe this would be easy work for Mikey Garcia. But over 10 rounds, he was completely outboxed. Uh, He won a majority decision. It should have been a unanimous decision. He was soundly beaten by Sando Martin, which, you know, I guess raises the question, what is the future of Mikey Garcia? Was it an off night or was it a sign that a 33-year-old fighter is starting to slow down? So give me a reaction to what you saw from Mikey Garcia. Yeah, he he looked sluggish to me, Chris. I mean, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, maybe he didn't have the best camp. He didn't say that, but uh, he just looked sluggish to me. Maybe lethargic might be the right word. And I got to be honest. I mean, I would have preferred to see a a much, much greater sense of urgency from Mikey Garcia in the second half of that fight because he had to know, and his brother is is a very smart boxing guy, they had to know he was losing rounds in that fight despite what he told you in the ring after the fight he knew he was losing rounds and he never really turned it up a couple of notches to sort of separate himself the way that everyone thought that he would against Sandor Martin from the beginning of the fight. I was just happy that the two of the judges at least got it right. Chris, I thought he won seven of the 10 rounds. Two judges did score at 97, 93. Um, You know, know, Mikey Garcia won a few rounds obviously, but it was just kind of an apathetic performance from Mikey Garcia. And with so much at stake for him, I found that surprising. So it's almost more, not from a physical standpoint, do I question where he is. I question it more from a mental standpoint because he's made a lot of money, you know, frankly was grossly overpaid for several of his fights and, and, you know, capitalized on the market being what it was at the time. Um, But does he really want to fight anymore at the top level? Because I'll tell you what, if that Mikey Garcia got into the ring with Regis Progre, he would have gotten demolished. Yeah, badly. I mean, he would have gotten hurt by Regis Progray, who um, is a much hungrier fighter at this stage of his career. I was pretty surprised, Keith, at the performance of Mikey Garcia because you go back to 2016 when Mikey Garcia was coming off a a two-and-a-half-year layoff. He came back and he just demolished Ilio Rojas, like knocked him out in that fight. He went on to face uh, Dijon, uh, I'm going to screw up his name, Zatichinan, Zatichinin, I think is how you pronounce mm-hmm. the last name. And he knocked him out in maybe the best knockout performance of his career. So he didn't miss a beat after that two and a half year layoff. Now, the difference is the Rojas fight, I think was at 140 or around there. He goes back mm-hmm. down to lightweight for the next fight. So he was in a weight class that made sense for him where his physical skills were an advantage. I think one thing we've learned if nothing else about Mikey Garcia the last couple of years, he's not a welterweight. And he's not, you know, the 145-pounder that he was in this fight. 144 pounds is what he came in right around on the scale. He is is 140 or below. So if he's not going to fight at 140, I'm not sure sure where Mikey Garcia would go from there. Yeah, he's definitely not a welterweight, Chris. And And I commend Mikey Garcia. Of course, he was paid a lot of money to fight Errol Spence Jr., but that was a tall order, man. I mean, he comes off that that Robert Easter fight in which he looked excellent and goes and fights Errol Spence, a much bigger, younger, stronger fighter. And and he was 
beaten decisively in that fight. And I, and I thought he maybe unfairly to a degree took some criticism for kind of playing it safe uh, toward the end of that fight and just trying to make it the distance and not getting knocked out by Errol Spence Jr. And I don't really blame him for that because you could certainly argue that he didn't belong in the ring with Errol Spence Jr. to begin with. Um, again, was paid a lot of money for the, for the trouble, of course. But uh, the, the difference here, of course, is that Sandor Martin is not a welterweight either. And he's certainly not anywhere near as good as Errol Spence was at the time when he fought Mikey Garcia. Um, so yeah, he's not a welterweight. I, I don't, I, I think his best weight now, of course, would be 140 pounds, but I, I, again, I was troubled by his body language, by the way he kind of just went through the motions in my opinion for, for a lot of that fight. Um, maybe he, maybe he doesn't want to fight anymore for, for, to, you know, he's going to do it because he's going to be paid a lot of money to do it, but, you know, I don't know, maybe, and I'm not, I don't know any, I don't have any inside knowledge of this uh, in terms of how he feels about moving forward with his career, but he just, there just didn't seem to be that hunger in Mikey Garcia that we had previously seen because Chris, as you well know, Mikey Garcia was not supposed to become what he became. I mean, mm -hmm. Robert, Robert Garcia was the fighter in the family back when his dad was training Fernando Vargas and they didn't, Mikey didn't think he was going to become what he became in boxing. So it's a, an incredible success story and Mikey's a very humble guy and likable guy and everything but I just wonder where he goes from here because now he's got to get up for a, a rematch with Sandor Martin which he, he in no way is guaranteed and frankly if I'm Sandor Martin I would prefer to go fight someone else and make a lot of money maybe try to get a title shot which he seemingly would have earned by beating Mikey Garcia so that's not going to be easy to get Sandor Martin back in the ring with him again and again, he, he should not have been in the ring with him to begin with, probably. Right. I mean, a credit to Sandor Martin for rising to the occasion and changing his life and, and his career and everything. But, you know, in some ways, maybe Mikey Garcia and, and, and Robert, maybe they got what they deserved on this one. They were looking for what they thought was a soft touch. And it obviously was not. Uh, you made the point, Keith, about Mikey Garcia not supposed to to be not supposed to becoming what Mikey Garcia has become. He is. I mean, this is a story you've written. I've written over the years. Mikey Garcia doesn't really love boxing. He's just mm -hmm. really good at it. And, yeah. you know, he's the best member of his family. But that family from Robert to his brother Danny to the father, I mean, they are a fighting family. They are a passionate family about boxing. Mikey just happens to be the best, but he probably lacks, and he definitely lacks, the most passion out of any of them. So he's going to have to rediscover that if he wants to get back into this. I wonder too about the the rematch. Um, our friend Dan Raphael posited this the other day, and, and I I think there's some merit to it. Like maybe just act like this Martin fight didn't happen and just go into the Regis Progray fight anyway. Um, I don't know who's going to pay for... I, I mean, like I just don't know who's going to pay for a rematch between Mikey and Martin. I mean, it wasn't like... It wasn't like this was Gotti Ward and, you know, Mikey came out on the wrong end of it. It was an incredibly boring fight. I mean, credit Martin for doing what he had to do, being in great shape, moving around the ring, landing those straight left hands, but it wasn't television friendly. So unless Mikey Garcia is going to go well under seven figures to take a rematch, which I don't think he's going to be willing to do, I'm not sure where, where you turn to to broadcast the rematch between these two guys. I see your point from a business standpoint, Chris, and you're right. But Mikey Garcia should want to go clean up his mess, so to speak. And if that requires him to be paid a lot less than he was paid for this fight, and certainly a lot less than he's been paid for a lot of other fights, well, he sort of maybe 
owes boxing one to some extent to go clean that up because I don't think that you can just as, as Dan, I didn't see Dan write that, but I don't think you can just ignore it because then if you're Mikey Garcia, who's accustomed to making a lot of money, you can't go to the negotiating table. Just let's say if he does wind up fighting Regis Progray or someone else, you know, comparable to Regis Progray, um, how do you go to the negotiating table and start making all kinds of demands when in your last fight you lost seven rounds to a guy who was a 20 to one underdog? You, you really can't. So in some ways, whether he has to take a financial hit to do it is, is sort of irrelevant and that he needs to go clean up his mess. But to your point, who's paying for it? Because it's not like if the zone comes in and, and pays Sandor Martin, whatever he's looking for, even if, Mikey Garcia does it on the cheap. It would still be a relatively expensive fight. Got paid $1.5 million for that last fight. It, it can't right. be anywhere near there for a rematch. Right. And, and as, also, to your point, Chris, it was not an entertaining fight. And that maybe mostly is because Mikey didn't, I didn't think, really turn it up uh, in the second half of the fight and fight with a sense of urgency. But, you know, maybe the rematch would be different. But I do think that if he's going to go into bigger fights, now, look, he, he could wind up fighting high-level guys without fighting Sandor Martin but he would have to significantly adjust his asking prices for those fights because, because frankly, you can't pretend that it didn't happen. It happened. We all saw it. And, and it was one of the biggest upsets in, in recent history. It was, it was right. Not from a, from a magnitude standpoint, certainly, but Andy Ruiz was a 20 to one underdog roughly. I mean, I think he, maybe Josh was like a 22 to one favorite or so going into the, into that fight. I mean, it's on that level in terms of, um, you know, of course, Andy Ruiz was more established and, you could argue that maybe he beat Joseph Parker and was undefeated, but yeah, Andy, Andy Ruiz had fought at the world level before. Right, like right. Sandra Martin had forget mm -hmm. won at the world level. His best win was probably K Prosper in his previous fight. Mm -hmm. And okay, I, I think that might have benefited Sandra Martin. I said this on the air, like the activity of Martin over the last you know twelve months. He had fought twice, where Mikey Garcia had not fought at all really since February yeah. of twenty twenty, and he looked like the sharper fighter out there for for whatever that's worth. All right, let's move on to the real action on last Saturday night, which came outside the ring between a definitely not staged and completely organic um, interaction between Devin Haney and Teofimo Lopez. Devin Haney, Matchroom's 135-pound uh, title holder, Teofimo Lopez, who will fight for Ed, or under Eddie Hearn for at least one fight coming up uh, in uh, November 27th. That fight was recently announced, the Lopez-Cambosis fight, which has been snake-bitten for the better part of the last six months. Haney and Lopez went at it ringside. They, you know, were, they were throwing some weird things around. Haney's talking about his followers. Lopez is talking about his belt. It got kind of goofy after a little while, but Keith, it did kind of get my blood flowing about seeing that fight. I mean, Devin Haney, you know, however you want to parse it up. These are the two 135 pound title holders. They've got all the belts in 135-pound division. They're both young guys in their early 20s. They're both undefeated. We will all want to see that fight. So I'll ask you this. In the aftermath of that, do you have any more optimism that we will see Haney and Lopez get in the ring? Nope. Uh, and, <laughs> and I will tell you, I'll give you several, reasons, several reasons why. Despite your blood flow issues over there, I, I will say this. I, I think that Tiafimo Lopez, after he beats George Cambosis, uh, is going to move up to 140 pounds. Now, that doesn't mean that Devin Haney couldn't also move up to 140 pounds to make that fight happen. Um, but I would like to see them settle their business at lightweight, where 
you can kind of see it from both sides. You know, Devin Haney wanted to fight Lomachenko. Uh, he feels like he's the real WBC champion. Um, and you, of course, could see it from Tiafima Lopez's side. He beat the guy. You know, there, there's no one on the Lenoris win is a is a good win, I think, for for Devin Very Haney. And you know, and he walked through something there in the tenth round and and then showed some toughness there by overcoming that troublesome moment at the end of the tenth. But um, you know, but Lomachenko is a better fighter than Lenaris, although their fight was competitive uh however long, three, four years ago, whatever it was now. Um, but he beat him and he, and he knocked him out. So as four other fighters have done to Lenaris and Devin Haney did not do, but it is a good win for Devin Haney. And it was a good step in his progression. I think to show where he's headed when he starts fighting guys at the higher level. Um, but Devin Haney has a, um, an expectation, let's say to be paid a certain amount of money for these types of fights. It's the reason why top now people complain about top rank being cheap and, uh, we hear that all the time. They don't want to pay the fighters what they want. And Tiafimo Lopez himself has, has complained about that publicly uh, going into this purse bid for um, this seven times rescheduled George Cambosis <laughs> fight. Uh, but, uh, you know, Devin Haney wants maybe more money and, and maybe Lopez does too, but, but Haney specifically wants more money than the fight is worth probably because he's become accustomed to making huge sums of money while working with the zone for lesser fights. Um, so if you're him and you, and you are used to making that kind of money for fighting Jorge Linares, um, to a lesser extent, Yoriorkas Gamboa, guys like that, you're like, well, if I'm going to fight Lopez, I, I want X, you know? So is the fight makeable? Is it viable financially based on what both guys purse demands would be? And I would say at this moment, I don't think that it is necessarily. And of course, Tiafimo Lopez has some options on the, uh, top rank ESPN side, assuming he's able to beat George Cambosis on November 27th, he can go, you know, he would, he has mentioned many times moving up to potentially fight Josh Taylor for all the 140 pound titles, which is a very intriguing fight. Um, the unfortunate thing just to, to, as it relates to these lightweights, Chris, we all want to see Lopez fight uh, Haney. We all want to see Lopez fight tank. We all want to see tank fight Haney. We all want to see Ryan Garcia when, you know, when he's healthy enough from a physical and mental standpoint, fight all of these guys. We've been talking about these fights for, you know, I was in my mid forties when we started talking about this, these fights and none of them have happened. You know, they, we just keep, we just keep going forward in this vicious cycle on social media. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And while what happened last week at ringside uh, drew a lot of attention, I don't think it got us any closer to the fight being made as, as I'd like to be more optimistic than that, but I just don't see how, from a financial standpoint, standpoint, it's doable right now. No, I don't think this fight can be negotiated between Eddie Hearn and top rank Haney and Lopez. Where I find optimism is if the WBC gets involved. The WBC can order this as a mandatory fight. Lopez is the franchise champion. They didn't want Lopez to be the franchise champion, but they allowed the title to be transferred when Lopez beat Lomachenko. Haney is the regular champion, or whatever you want to call it, the full champion. But Mauricio Suleiman has said Haney or Lopez is at the top of the WBC's lightweight food chain. The simple solution is once Lopez gets through Cambosis, if he gets through Cambosis, to order Lopez to make a mandatory defense against Devin against Devin Haney or or the winner of Devin Haney versus Fighter X if it's Jojo Diaz if it's somebody else 
in early December. It's pretty simple. You want to clean up the multiple belts you have at 135. You want to eliminate a franchise championship that you never intended for Teofimo Lopez to have. Just order the fight. Because, Keith, if they do that, the only way for one of the fight, the only way for that fight not to happen then is for one of the fighters to say, all right, I'll give up my belt here. Or, and I just don't see Lopez or Haney taking that route. I'd love to see that fight go to purse bid. I'd love to see everybody get in and bid on it. I think if that happens, there's at least a possibility we could see Lopez and Haney share the ring. There would definitely be a greater possibility, Chris, if they went that route, but I don't think that that would make it a foregone conclusion that the fight happens because back to what I said earlier about the money, because if they're, if, if no one is willing to bid what Lopez and Haney feel that the fight is worth, whether those expectations are realistic or not, um, it, if they're not going to be paid what they think that the fight is worth, then they simply won't go one of them or both of them won't go forward with it. Yeah. But doesn't that Keith, won't that like, at least like, at least if that happens, you have some clarity there right now. It's like, well, all, would, I have, well, all I have in the back of my head, Keith, is sign the contract. What contract? What about the meeting with Bob? Sign the contract. Like, it, there's so much ambiguity I, yeah. out there at the point. This point. I, I, I agree, Chris. You know, it, it brings, yeah, it, it's fun for fans to talk about. And on social media, people lose their minds about all this stuff. And they go back and forth. And, you know, Haney has his fans. Lopez has his fans. Ryan Garcia has his fans and all that. But I, but I, I would say this. Uh, and to, I just want to preface what I'm saying by by just squarely blaming all of this on Mauricio Suleiman and the WBC, because these franchise championships should never have been invented. They were not supposed to be transferable. The rules change, the goalposts move as they move forward and it suits them. And we should all be sick of it at this point. Um, I am. Beyond, beyond sick of it, of course, but it kind of is what it is. Right. But Lopez has, has the distinction of having beaten Lomachenko. So, in my opinion, that makes him the best lightweight in the world. Devin Haney would have to disprove that in the ring for me because he's beaten Zaur Abdullayev and, you know, Linares is his best win now, of course. But, um, but, but what I was starting to say before, before I got on that WBC tangent was just that, you know, Ryan Garcia, we thought that we were going to see Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney, when Ryan Garcia took a tough fight against Luke Campbell, got off the deck and, and impressively knocked Luke Campbell out. Now, Luke Campbell's a, a B-level, he's a very talented guy, but a B-level lightweight because he's lost every time he stepped up for the most part. But he's a very good fighter and still somewhat in his physical prime when Ryan Garcia beat him. That should have made Ryan Garcia, Devin Haney happen. They're both with the zone. He won the interim title. He was the mandatory challenger for Devin Haney and they still haven't fought. So... (laughs) Yeah. And he was, and he was again going to fight for the interim title. It's like, why do you con- why would you continue fighting for the interim title when you have no interest in fighting for the actual title? So, so I, my point is that just because something is ordered or someone becomes the mandatory or anything, guys can still kind of do what they want to do. And I would expect that to be the case with Haney and Lopez uh, if it were mandated in some some way. I feel like I'm Charlie Brown in this context and the lightweight division is Lucy holding the football. Like I keep kind of like getting excited that it's going to be there. And then it gets taken away from me. I've got visions in my head, Keith of Lopez Cambosis on November 27th, Devin Haney versus Jojo Diaz on December 3rd. And then March of 2022, 
Haney versus Lopez for all the lightweight marbles. And then the winner will be, coming off those two fights, the winner will be a bona fide star. Like, there's a huge upside for these guys to follow that path. The winner would be a big deal. I admire your optimism. It's, um, it's wishful thinking, I think, is better. But, 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 I, but I, would, I would say this. If, if Devin Haney winds up fighting Jojo Diaz on uh, December 4th, that's not an easy fight. You know, Jojo Diaz, no. as you well know, Chris, you've been you've called these fights from ringside. Jojo Diaz is no easy out for anyone. Um, you know, he 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 looked very good against Fortuna. You know, he fought as a lightweight for the or, well, <laughs> he kind of fought as a lightweight for the first time. He wasn't supposed to the previous fight, but he was a lightweight. But point being, as a full fledged lightweight, he looked pretty good against Javier Fortuna, who's probably better suited as a junior lightweight, also. But it was a fight. Um, you know, that, that people looked at as a difficult fight for Ryan Garcia before he withdrew from it. So not an easy fight for Devin Haney. I, I think Lopez will have an easier time with George Cambosis, despite the buildup toward the fight. And some people thinking for whatever reason that George Cambosis has a legitimate chance to win. I, I don't see that. The, the only, the only thing that I would say is that I just hope that Tiafimo Lopez does not lose focus going into this fight, looking ahead toward bigger things because, mm-hmm you know, that's always a dangerous game to play. And this is the biggest moment of George Cambosis' life and career. And he will, without question, be up for it. So I just hope that Tiafimo Lopez matches his, and I have no reason to believe that he won't, but just hope he matches his intensity and his focus and handles his business on November 27th. Yes, and fingers crossed that fight moves forward on November 27th and nobody gets hurt. Because if it doesn't, we should just forget all about it in 2022. All right, let's talk a little bit about the heavyweight division, Keith. I have been advocating for weeks now that Anthony Joshua should look for a new trainer in the aftermath of the loss to Alexander Usyk. It was revealed this week that Joshua has been on something of a stateside tour looking at other trainers. He has been with Eddie Reynoso in Team Canelo's camp. I have heard he's been around Robert Diaz. You've heard some other names that, Robert Garcia, I should say. You've heard some other names that have been out there. I think this is a good move, Keith. And it's not meant to be disrespectful to the job that Rob McCracken has done up until this point. It's just that you can't watch Anthony Joshua over the last two, two and a half years and think that he doesn't need to do something different. Not only do I think he needs a new trainer in his corner, but I think he'll benefit greatly from getting the hell out of the UK for training camp. I mean, he's such a big star in the UK can't go anywhere can't do anything without being quote Anthony Joshua you go stateside and with all due respect to the heavyweight champion of the world or now the former heavyweight champion of the world like let's say for example you go to San Diego where Canelo trains nobody knows who you are like nobody knows like they're more likely to know who like Kelly Slater is than know who Anthony Joshua is in San Diego so I think all these these are all reasons for Anthony Joshua to look in a different direction. And I think he is. I think whoever it may be he goes to, whether it's Eddie Reynoso, Robert Garcia, whoever else is on that list, uh, I do think he's going to go in that direction. Yeah, it couldn't hurt to have a new set of eyes and and a new voice in his corner. Um, You know, Rob McCracken obviously has guided to him to great heights, and I thought they did a good job in the Andrew Ruiz rematch of uh, boxing in a way that, was not entertaining, but was uh, thoroughly effective. 
so they were able to get him to do some different things in that fight that worked to his benefit, regain the titles and everything. But I, I, I agree with you, Chris. I don't think it could hurt to, to not only get a new trainer um, and, and a new voice in his corner, but also to get out of England, like you said, where there's a lot of distractions for him and he's a, a mega, mega star. Whereas over here in the United States, he, he could walk down the street and I don't think many people would, would know who he is. You would Not know in he Southern was, California, that's for sure. Right. You might know who he is because, or that he's someone because he's 6'6", 240 pounds and, you know, a charismatic guy. And he's not like a talkative guy or anything, but you might know that he's somebody, but you're not going to know necessarily. That he's Southern, Ca- Southern California player. fans will probably ask, like, do you play linebacker for the Chargers? Right, like, of that's, course. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's that kind of thing. I it just, I, you know, something's got to give here. And time and again, we've seen examples of trainer changes being beneficial. I've talked a lot about the heavyweight division with Lennox Lewis, of course, and Vladimir Klitschko, among others. But a fight we're going to talk about in a few minutes. I mean, what kind of impact has Brian McIntyre had on Jamel Herring? Like a big impact. He has, he has helped transform Herring from a guy who had 135 pounds, had lost two of his last three fights, who comes to Bomac, works with him, goes to that Terrence Crawford gym, and turns himself into a world champion with a chance to elevate himself significantly on Saturday night. I mean, it just it just happens. In sports, sometimes you need a different voice in your corner. I think Joshua has reached that point where he needs a new voice. He certainly needs new strategy. I mean, whoever he hires to train him, I hope the first thing they say is, you were at 240 last fight. Let's get back into 255, 260 for this fight. And let's start playing some bully ball. Let's start going at Alexander Usyk and not play this pitter-patter game of trying to outbox one of the best pound-for-pound boxers in any weight class in boxing. That would be my first piece of strategic advice for Anthony Joshua. In fairness to Rob McCracken, I don't think he told Anthony Joshua to go try out, try and outbox Alexander Usyk. Yeah, but did I he think, say I to think... come in at 240? Like, the 240 thing was wild, too. I think yeah. one of his lowest weights, like, that was... Yeah, I mean he's been yeah he's been around that weight uh, less. But the, the point being, I think that was in Anthony Joshua's mind that he was going to be able to outbox Alexander Usyk, and he was maybe stubborn in trying to disprove to you know or try to prove people wrong that he couldn't do that, and he and obviously he couldn't do that. So wh- whoever trains him, wherever he trains, he better do a whole lot different. Uh, maybe in the build up to, to the fight and the fight itself if he's to have any chance at regaining his titles. Yeah. What I, what I had heard when he was around team Canelo was like, Canelo was there, like, you know, yeah. as part of those conversations, like they're just kind of like, they're just showing him like, what are you doing with this jab and, and move? Like mm-hmm. go at him inside pow, you know, yeah. you know, just be physical with the much smaller fighter. Um, look again, you're right. Maybe Rob McCracken did have that in his mind, but it's clearly not getting through in the way it needs to get through. And this yeah. is the most important fight of Anthony Joshua's career. If he doesn't win this fight against Usyk, it's a pretty significant rebuild uh, after that to try to get him back uh, to that highest level. All right, let's talk about another heavyweight. Dillian White has withdrawn from his scheduled October 30th fight against Otto Wallen. Uh, White versus Wallen was supposed to determine the next mandatory challenger for Tyson Fury. As we speak, Dillian White has the WBC's interim title. And if he had won against Wallen, he would have moved on to face Tyson Fury for the full title with the WBC. There have been some questions, Keith, fair ones, I think, about just how injured 
Dillian White is? Did he look at Otto Wallen as being too big a risk going into a potential heavyweight championship fight against Tyson Fury? Regardless, what's your take on how this should play out next? I mean, Wallen's promoters, uh, his management team, they have been very public with their insistence that this fight needs to be rescheduled. Two questions. Do you think it will be rescheduled? And should it be rescheduled? No and yes. Um, be, because Dimitri Salida has a good point. You know, they, they trained for this fight. They were going to be paid handsomely uh, to go over there. I, I actually thought Otto Wallin had a very good chance, as, as many other people did, to beat Dillian White. Um, Tyson Fury told me a couple of weeks ago when we were in Las Vegas about that fight specifically. He said he favored Otto Wallin to win. He's been, you know, spent 12 rounds in the ring and, and knows he's a tough guy. Um, he expected uh, him to beat Dillian White. Um, so a lot of people were thinking that. The thing that never made sense to me, Chris, is I didn't understand why they scheduled this fight to begin with. Because if you're Dillian White now, he want, you know, of course he wanted to, to make a good payday and the, and the fight would have, you know, would have been a big fight in the UK and everything. Um, so maybe he couldn't just get in there with a, with a C-level heavyweight and get paid what he wanted to get paid. But I, excuse me, I viewed it as a risky, uh, kind of a, a very high risk, low reward type of fight for him. Because I, again, I thought it was one that he probably would have lost. And then of course you're not, uh, uh, the mandatory thing, by the way, just, it drives me crazy. The whole thing drives me crazy um, because I, I, I still do not understand how you get knocked unconscious and then continue claiming that you're the mandatory challenger. Now he went and cleaned up his mess. He, he, he dominated Alexander Provetkin, uh, you know, in, in the rematch and, and avenged his loss, but that doesn't change the fact that he was knocked unconscious. He has not been the thing him repeatedly claiming. Now he should have gotten a title shot at some point, but at this point he's not being wronged in the sense that I, I can't emphasize enough. Two fights ago, you were knocked unconscious there are guys ranked ahead of you who, by the way, have not been knocked unconscious since that happened to you. So you, it's it's not it's not a trans a transferable thing. Which, of course, there's a lot of gray area with the WBC as ter- in terms of what's transferable and what isn't. Now he's the interim champion and he did regain the interim title, but that just further complicates this whole thing because had Alo Walin won, he would have won the interim championship, but it was not an eliminator. The fight had not been declared an eliminator, so he would have the interim championship, but he's the 20th ranked contender, according to the WBC. Now, I think Otto Wallin is much better than the 20 best, 20th best heavyweight in the world, but he technically, or according to their rules, is not even eligible for a title shot. You're supposed to be within the top 15 to get a title shot. So, so who knows? I mean, they make it up as they go along, so it's hard to say what would have been done and what would have been done, but what I think indisputably will not be done is that this fight will be rescheduled. I think they, from a business standpoint, um, you know, they, they said Dillian White has a shoulder injury. Okay. Um, they also said that he, that it would not uh, set him back all that long. If that is the case, if you're Dimitri Salida or Otto Wallin, you would say, okay, well then let, let's schedule the fight for a month later if you're all ready to go. That's mm-hmm. what I would say, but I don't think the fight's going to be rescheduled. Yeah, I feel... For Otto Wallin, um, it was a good opportunity for him, a good payday for him. Uh, and I agree with you. I don't believe it's going to be rescheduled. And I also agree with you that Dillian White shouldn't, you know, all the things that are being written, like Dillian White's been mandatory for over a thousand days. Well, that's not really true. No. Like he would. <laughs> 
it's, it's a little maddening. <laughs> Again, he was not... you got knocked unconscious. Correct. I, I can't. I can't repeat it enough. Where where I kind of lean towards Dillian White is that before that happened, he was being royally hosed by the WBC. Yeah, like he, you know, there was over a year that he was the mandatory and should have received a world title opportunity against uh, either Deontay Wilder or Tyson Fury. He never got that opportunity. So now, even though there might be something, you know, funny going on behind the scenes, Dillian White, to me, has done enough over the last few years to warrant this world title opportunity. So I say give it to him. If Tyson Fury wants to come back in the first quarter of 2022, White versus Fury is a big fight. Nobody would dispute that White is a worthy, mandatory challenger. Like For those reasons, I'd like to see Dillian White get that. Not because he's, you know, again, you just Google it. It's like a thousand days people keep writing. Like, it's not, that's not a thing. But before that, he was doing everything possible to get that, um, to, to earn that, that world title opportunity. He's got a great resume at heavyweight. He's fought some of the best. And the reason, like, he's, I mean, the reason he lost that opportunity was because he fought a real guy in Alexander Povetkin. And not a lot of heavyweights are fighting real guys. You know, so I give um, Dillian White credit for that, too. So I'd, I'd like to see that fight happen in the first quarter of 22. I think it will happen. I think Fury, who has talked publicly about that fight in the past, even before Anthony Joshua lost to Usyk. I think Fury would go for it. It's a big fight, as we said, in the UK, and um, I think that's that's likely to happen. Yeah, and, and they want to bring Tyson Fury back to the UK at some point. He's yeah, a bigger, star, bigger star, star now than he was before, clearly after this trilogy with Deontay Wilder. He hasn't fought in the UK in three and a half years or so. So, I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's the best heavyweight in the world now. He's certainly the best heavyweight in England, the best heavyweight worldwide. And I think he would like to fight back, you know, Manchester, London, wherever. Um, and the Dillian White fight would be a big fight back there. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to come down on Dillian White, but, I, you know, he, he, there was once upon a time he deserved a title shot. And it's unfortunate and unfair to him that he did not get it when he was supposed to get it. But I just like can, people continuing to harp on this as if what happened in the first Alexander Provecan fight didn't happen is just very annoying. No, I, I agree. I agree. Um, it's such a big fight in the UK that I think just regardless of mandatory status, make the fight. Like, you know, put Otto Wally in a position to fight on the undercard, give him a chance to fight for an interim title down the line. It's not perfect, but I'd like to see White against Fury early next year. All right, let's talk for a second about the welterweight division. Um, back in August, Jordanis Ugas picked up the biggest win of his career, knocking off Manny Pacquiao, retiring, at least for now, Manny Pacquiao, and winning the full version or retaining, I guess, the full version of the WBA's uh, welterweight title, the super version of the welterweight uh, title. In the aftermath of that, Ugas, understandably, had hoped to take a unification fight against Errol Spets. That would be an incredibly meaningful fight, of course, but also bring a big payday for Yodanis Ugas as well. The WBA which is efforting to combine its titles and eliminate the interims and the regulars and all the stuff that has plagued it over the last uh, five or 10 years. They said, no, 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 you've got to participate in this box off. First up against Danionis, a young fighter who is, what, I think 13 and 0 at this point. That fight's supposed to take place at some point before the end of the calendar year. Ugas is upset about this. Does he have a point, Keith? Yes, I mean... uh 
your Dennis Ugas pulled off what was considered a big upset. A lot of people thought that Ugas was going to win going into that fight. Terrence Crawford was among the people who predicted that he would win. Um, and Sean Porter obviously knows how good Ugas is. He may or may not have beaten him once upon a time. Uh, so Ugas should be in a position now where he can capitalize on the biggest win of his career. I'm not saying that if he has a mandatory due that he shouldn't be forced to make it like everyone else. But, you know, the WBA has gotten rid of its interim titles but still has three champions in, in various weight classes it, 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 despite getting rid of the interim title. So it's still quite a mess that they've created. Um, and if, if I'm Ugas, I want to fight. And why shouldn't he be? Let's just say Errol Spence comes back healthy within the time frame that they're saying he can come back, maybe a little ambitious, but let's say that that happens and he wants to fight Ugas next. Why shouldn't Ugas be granted an, an exemption to go and fight Errol Spence in a, in a title unification fight? They did, the sanctioning bodies do that all the time because unification fights trump mandatories and optional defenses and everything. So he should be allowed to do that, I would think. I mean, why, why can't your Dennis Ugas, who completely turned around his career once he moved up to welterweight and has become – you know, a household name might be a little strong, but he just beat Manny Pacquiao. So his, his life and his career is completely different than it was before mm-hmm. August 21st. And from a financial standpoint, he should be allowed to capitalize on that. Now, I see it from the perspective of Jamal James and uh, Razbad Butaev, whatever, however we're pronouncing it, Butaev is well his done. last well name. Done. <laughs> I'm not a professional announcer like yourself, you know what I mean? But uh, I already forgot um, Stanionis' first name, so it's, you know. Amontis. It's Amontis. There we go. Amontis. Yes, yes. In my brain, I'd forgotten it, so I decided not to say it at that point. Gotta get up on your Lithuanian history, man. Come on. I'm trying. Um, Sarunas Marshallonis. <laughs> um, but so I could see it from Jamal James's perspective. He, if he beats Butayev, and that's a tough fight. I mean, either one of those guys, I could see winning that fight next week. That's uh, main event on Showtime from Las Vegas on October 30th. I, I, the winner of that fight would have a real right to say, I, you know, I want to fight Ugas next. But again, if, he, if a unification fight is there for your Dennis Ugas, he should be allowed to pursue it and go make the kind of money that he deserves to make after, you know, taking short money on short notice to fight uh, Manny Pacquiao because clearly, you know, he didn't make anywhere near what Errol Spence was supposed to make for the fight. And of course he was not going to pass on the opportunity, uh, but he capitalized on it. He deserves to make the kind of money uh, that the Pacquiao fight should earn him next. And let's hope that the WBA comes to its senses. Uh, maybe we should just get the ABC involved because I, one thing that I found interesting and had it happened before, if the association of boxing commissions would have come down harder on the WBA sooner than it did we could have alleviated a lot of nonsense related to the wba over the last few years because the second that the abc stepped in and said hey look we're watching you guys you know we 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 don't like what's going on here and we're paying very close attention to what you're doing that they they said oh okay oh we're gonna get rid of all the interim titles we're gonna do the you know they they got a little nervous you know Mm -hmm. because they're pretty much unregulated outside of the united states but when somebody with a type of a or or an entity with the type of influence that the ABC has started dropping the hammer. They, they sure got nervous. So yeah, let's all it, took was, all it took was Michael Fox getting robbed to uh, get yeah. the ABC involved and uh, get the WBA to start acting. I'm with you. And you know, Keith, I, I just, if Pacquiao had won that fight against Dugas, there's no way the WBA is ordering him to face Sanionis. Like that's not happening. Like this is in, I think this is in large part because Ugas is not, 
a household name, so but, to speak. But, 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 let me, but how is Stan Jonas even? I, mean, I have nothing against. I don't know that either. That's, no, that's another good, good question. Good, he's, a good, he's a good fighter. I mean, he's very good, and, and I yeah. think he eventually will fight for a world title deservedly. But what the winner of Butai? If they were going to order something, it should be the yes. winner of the Butayev James fight because that fighter would be their world champion. Yep. Um, and that fighter should be should should and especially Butayev because when he fought Besputin, Besputin, you know, won the fight, but then tested positive for a PED. So if there's a guy who deserves a break in this whole thing, now he is getting a second title shot here, of course, but if there's a guy who deserves something done to have something done right to him, as opposed to what has happened before it's Butayev. I agree. Um, and it, look, it, logically it makes sense. You have Butayev fight James, and then that gives a little bit more of a runway to Ugas to figure out if the Spence fight is makeable in the first two months of 2022, like they've suggested. If by, say, mid-December, that fight does not look like it's being close to being made, then if you're the WBA, you could step in and say, all right, that fight, we don't know when that's going to happen. We're trying to clean this up. You now have 90 days to fight the winner of James versus Butayev. Like, that just seems logical. Stanley Jones' involvement in this is weird. Doesn't have high-level wins. Like, doesn't deserve what would effectively be a shot at the major title. Like, yeah. Ugas has the top version of the WBA's title. What has Stan Jonas done to warrant that type of opportunity? Nothing, in my mind. Yeah, I mean, the Delorme win was a good win, and I it's think fine, Delorme... Delorme's now, right, Delorme's no, now like, the name. He's like the name I, I, that I, you kind of... He's Delorme's a gatekeeper at welterweight, yeah. for sure. But Delorme actually fought pretty well in that fight, I thought. It was, yeah. a, it was a competitive fight. But I don't, this isn't Stan Jonas's fault. I, I under, totally understand what you're saying, Chris, but this isn't his fault. This is on the right. WBA. Like, why, like, how is he, again, how is he involved in this? It should be the winner of Butayev and James gets the shot at Ugas eventually. But if he is able to fight Spence in the interim, he should be allowed to do that. Yeah. And look, if Spence wins, then you can order Spence to fight the winner of that. And right. everybody makes more money. Everybody gets a higher profile. Everybody wins. It just seems yeah. like logic is not carrying the day here. All right. I want to finish down in Atlanta where you are. Jamel Herring taking on Shakur Stevenson. Shakur Stevenson has had uh, something of a meteoric rise since winning that silver medal at the Olympics. He is a champion at 126 pounds. He is now going for a championship at 130, Jamel Herring, as we touched on at the very beginning, has really turned his career around since he has partnered with Bo Mack, Brian McIntyre. I think he's won, I want to say, seven fights in a row since losing two out of the last three a few years ago. He's coming off the biggest win of his career against Carl Frampton over in the Middle East. You were at the press conference today, Keith. You saw these two guys kind of staring off. Herring has a size advantage, as we expect. Stevenson will probably have the skill advantage going into this fight. How do you see this fight kind of shaking out? I think it's a more interesting fight than the odds makers seem to think, or, and the betting public more. seems yeah. to think, right? I mean, you know, the Caesar Sportsbook has it as 10 to 1. They have Stevens as a 10 to That's 1 favorite. That's wild to me. That's so, wild. I mean, most of the rest of them are around 8 to 1, but um, even 8 to 1 is way too wide, in my opinion. I think this is a competitive fight. Um, you know, Shakur Stevenson is the younger fighter, and I don't think anyone would argue that he's not the more talented fighter. He is. Um, and some people have targeted him for stardom. Now, his last performance, he took a lot of criticism for the way he went about fighting Jeremiah Nakatia. But uh, he's a very talented kid. And um, he's still 24 years old. He's still a young guy, uh, 11 years younger than well, probably t almost 12 years because Jamel Herring will turn 36 next week. Um, but 
Jamel Herring has enjoyed a, a, a revival of his career, as you mentioned, Chris. And it's been fun to watch because I got to be honest, if you don't like Jamel Herring, there's, <laughs> there, there's something wrong with you. I mean, like, like you need to check out what's going on in your head. If you don't mm-hmm. like that guy, the guy did two tours of duty in Iraq. Uh, unfortunately had a child die of SIDS been through a, you know, a world of stuff in his life. And, and if you don't like that type of person, reassess how you're how you're going about life yourself but having said that i think that he he's become a much better fighter under brian mcintyre and and uh red spikes they've they've transformed his style and made him more of a of a boxer who relies on his length especially you know he's about five foot ten or so so he's a taller fighter for the junior lightweight division and they felt that before he came to them that he was, you know, he was uh, too aggressive. Like he wasn't relying enough on his natural boxing ability, which he has done more under them. And it's obviously worked very well. The performance against Frampton was, was a, now Frampton's at the back end of his career, but he's younger than, than Jamel Herring. That some mm-hmm. people thought maybe he had more mileage on him than Herring, even though he didn't have a, an, a, a lot more fights than him. He had a few more fights, but not that many more. Um, but that was an impressive win because the odds were around even, you know, Jamel Herring was maybe a slight favorite when the fight went off and he demolished Carl Frampton. Who's had a great career, a two weight world champion, probably not a junior lightweight. He's better suited for 126 or 122, but it was a very good win. Um, gave him a lot of momentum going into this fight, Chris. Um, so I think it's a much to answer your original question. I think it's a much more competitive fight than 10 to one. Uh, but, but Jamel's going to have to, uh, produce maybe a career best performance if he's going to beat a, a, a defensive defensively masterful fighter like Shakur Stevenson who has just a lot a lot of natural ability and a high ring IQ yeah I, I think what this fight comes down to is how does Jamel Herring assert his size advantage if you get into just kind of a clinical boxing match with Shakur Stevenson you're going to lose and it's probably not going to be entertaining like that's just kind of the way it goes but Herring at the Olympics, he was fighting at over 140 pounds for the first part of his professional career. He was fighting at 135 pounds. He is a very big 130-pounder. And you can see that at the press conference. He's going to have a couple of inches at least on Shakur Stevenson. He's going to have, once he rehydrates, probably a significant amount of weight on Shakur Stevenson. Now, Stevenson may you know, maybe even stronger as he gets more and more adjusted to 130 pounds. I don't know. He was clearly shrinking himself down to get to 126, but whether it's using his length, fighting on the outside, or being physical with Stevenson in the ring, that's going to be how Jamel Herring wins this fight. I I don't think he can just stand there and trade shots and counter shots with Shakur Stevenson. That just screams like 118-110 Shakur Stevenson at the end of the night. But if he can bully him a little bit, if he can use that length, this this can be a very close fight. This is not a lopsided mismatch that some are predicting. I agree, Chris. And the one word that stands out in my mind that Jamel Herring used when I spoke to him, he said, I have to make Shakur Stevenson uncomfortable because no one really makes him uncomfortable. They kind of allow him to get into what he wants to do. He gets into a rhythm, he gets comfortable, and then he's very difficult to beat when he's in that type of rhythm and when he's doing whatever he wants, however he wants, and whenever he wants. Jamel Herring has to make him uncomfortable. He's not a... I wouldn't say he's a uh, a rugged fighter in, a, in any way, Jamel Herring, but he's got to make it physical and he's got to make Shakur Stevenson know that it's not going to be the type of fight where he can just move around and comfortably box his way to a decision. I'm not saying necessarily that he'll want to do that in this fight, 
But he did do that in his last fight. And another good point I thought that Herring made to me, and I think we all noticed it during the fight, is when Jeremiah Nakatia, who is, I'm sure, a bigger puncher than Jamel Herring, um, but when Nakatia hits Shakur Stevenson with a right hand toward the end of the sixth round, it definitely changed the way that Stevenson went about the fight. I mean, he, got, he took the shot fine, I thought. I mean, he didn't seem to be hurt. But it seemed to get his attention in a way that he was much more defensive-minded in the second half of that fight than he was in the first half. Because if you watch the first half of the fight, there were times when I wouldn't say he slugged it out with him, but he definitely stood his ground and fought on the inside and traded with him a little bit. But when that right hand landed, when his back was against the ropes, he took like a, he landed a right hand that, that didn't land completely flush. And then maybe two or three seconds later, Stevenson was backed up against the ropes and Nakatia hit him with a flush right hand. And you could just see Stevenson's mindset change. And he started circling around the ring and, he, and there were maybe 20 seconds left to go in that round. And, and he, and he, you know, just moved his way toward the end of the round. Um, Herring's not as big a puncher as Nakatia, I don't think, but and he might not even be as big a puncher as Shakur Stevenson, who has kind of grown into his uh, man's body, so to speak. I mean, he, mm-hmm. when he first started, he was a young kid, and you remember him from the Olympics and everything. But now he's 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 uh, filled out, you know, and, and he's doing strength and conditioning at a high level now. So he looks more more the part of a 130 pounder than he did when he debuted as a featherweight. You know, one thing I'm curious about, and you can speak to this too, being down there, but you know, we've heard Brian McIntyre screaming many times before during press conferences and weigh-ins, kind of his thing, you know, getting trying to get in the head of opponents. But there's a relationship there between Bo Mack and Shakur Stevenson. Shakur Stevenson spends a lot of time training at that uh, Omaha gym that McIntyre runs. Obviously didn't do that for this fight because Jamel Herring was there, but you could see at the press conference, like Stevenson was more focused on Bo Mack than he was Jamel Herring. Like, he's looking over, he's yelling back at Bomack. Like, maybe that takes Stevenson a little bit out of his game. Maybe he's a little bit more enthusiastic about standing and trading and doing things that he's not necessarily strongest at. So I think strategically, that was the right thing to do for Team Herring, to try to creep under the skin of Shakur Stevenson and try to take him out of his game plan. And if you notice, while Shakur was looking over at at Bo Mack and Red Spikes and the rest of, you know, Herring's, Jennifer Herring, Jamel's wife, mm-hmm. you know, the whole group of his family and friends over there and was kind of drawing back and forth with them. Jamel Herring never took his eyes off Shakur Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Not one, not for one second did he look over at his guys that were chirping in the background or anything. He was fully focused on Shakur Stevenson. Sometimes we make too much of things that happen at press conferences. They turned out not to matter all that much. I just thought that that was interesting that he was fully focused and the second that Shakur Stevenson tried to touch his belt, Jamel Herring got a little irritated. <laughs> but for the, first time, for the first mm-hmm. time in all these exchanges, and he's called, you know, he has said things like Jamel Herring has no heart, which is a, a relatively, si- a relatively <laughs> silly thing to say for someone who's served two tours of duty in Iraq, obviously. But um, mm-hmm. look, you know, Shakur Stevenson comes from a rough place too, Newark, New Jersey, which I'm very familiar with. It's a war zone of sorts in its own right sometimes, depending on the neighborhood you're in there. But Again, Jamel Herring literally went to war in Iraq, so I don't think anything mentally is going to affect him. No mind games or anything like that are going to get him off of his game because he's just been through too much in his life uh, to have. Now, he might not be good enough to beat Shakur Stevenson. That ultimately might turn out to be the case on Saturday night, but it won't be because he fought the wrong fight or got emotional or uh, did things that were out of character for a guy who clearly has an enormous amount of character. 
I'm done discounting uh, Jamel Herring. You know, he looked like his career was over. Look, he looked like he wasn't going to have much of a career after the Olympics. I mean, I think he was 26 when Mm -hmm. the Olympics were done. Makes a career for himself, loses two out of three, looks like he's done then, claws his way back, wins a big fight against a bigger name in Carl Frampton. Uh, he may lose, but the idea that he's a 10-to-1 underdog, an 8-to-1 underdog, that to me is complete nonsense. This is going to be, I think, a very competitive fight. Keith, make sure when you get ringside they have a seat for me, like just in case I decide to hop on the Delta flight straight to Atlanta. Delta's a big, Atlanta's a big Delta hub, as you know. Like, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll catch one I've, I've, uh, I've, late. I flew Delta from Newark. I ordinarily fly United, but I took my Delta flight right down here. But big Delta. We'll, so we'll, just hey, big, look, yeah. Chris, we'll, we'll, we'll save a spot for you. It'll be empty the entire night, which is fine by me because I can just put all my stuff where you were supposed Correct. to sit. So it's all good. You know? <laughs> Correct. Just, just, yeah, it's like your, your own luxury. Uh, yeah. seat there like being in a movie seats. theater like exactly. being in a movie theater yeah. Keith enjoy the fight man always good to catch up appreciate it same here Chris take care when we come back my conversation with Shakur Stevenson so with big fights every week there's never been a better time to give FanDuel Sportsbook a shot and join the action on FanDuel Fight Nights because right now you can place your first bet risk free that's right you'll get up to $1,000 back if you don't win FanDuel gives you many bets to choose from. There are parlays, round props, method of victory bets, and so much more. Now, I am looking hard at the Shakur Stevenson-Jamel Herring fight this weekend. Herring is a big underdog. I don't think he should be. I think that's a very good value bet to put your money on Jamel Herring. Offers like this are just one of the many reasons I love betting on FanDuel. It is the number one rated sportsbook app in America. It's easy to use. There are safe and secure payouts, and there are fast payouts. The app is so easy to navigate, and when you win, you'll get paid in as little as two hours. With FanDuel in your corner, you'll always get exclusive odds boosts with great promotions and so much more to make your FanDuel fight night even more exciting. That's why they're America's number one sportsbook. Sign up with the promo code BOXING to bet risk-free up to $1,000 on FanDuel Sportsbook. Download FanDuel today. That's promo code BOXING. Hey guys, this is Matt Jones, Drew Franklin from the Fade This Podcast. We got a great episode coming up. Picks in all the sports, football, basketball, we do them all. But here's a preview of this week's episode. Nothing to do with anyone personally, but Creighton is the team every year that the nerds, you know, the basketball nerds, are like, you know, who's ready to get Creighton? You don't watch Creighton. And I'm like, I don't want to watch Creighton because I agree with Shane and the dude today. Creighton's never going to win anything. Stop talking to me about Creighton. They're not never the, not gonna, the not the Big East tournament. They're, well, I mean, they could maybe they win the Big East tournament, but it'll only be luck. But like, they're always like, you know, a sleeper team. That, like that guy who I told you had eight title teams. One of his title teams was Creighton. Is not winning the national championship. It's yeah, I don't not, have him doing that. That like that's why do we all have to act like Creighton is a, is a is a good team. Creighton's like the band they all say you should know if you really knew bands. <laughs> and then they're never at any of and those. Then never, yeah, exactly. And it comes time for the Grammys, and they lose out to, like, you know, Lil Durk. And you're like, see, I knew Lil Durk was better. Why are you, t- why are you telling me? He's the whole time. <laughs> and this episode was brought to you in partnership with DraftKings. To hear more, listen and subscribe to Fade This on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. All right, Shakur Stevenson is here. Uh, did you catch the shouting match between Devin Haney and Teofimo Lopez last weekend? Yeah, I seen some of the videos. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, I mean, it's good for boxing and uh, good for the fans that you got two fighters hungry and uh, want to fight each other, willing to fight each other. And I think after they fight, um, the, the promoters and everybody need to get together and make that fight happen. You think it matters – how many followers somebody has or how many belts somebody has that seem to be the, or how much money somebody makes? I mean, I get what both were saying. Uh, I think Devin only brought that up because of T.O. said uh, that he's using him for clout or yeah. whatever. And Devin had to let it be known. Like I, I already been somebody before you had that all on belt. So it don't really matter. Like I'm not using you for clout. Like it's just a big fight and, I feel like what Tio was saying about the belts. Um, I got more belts than you. That's a solid uh, line, comeback line. So I respect what both of them were saying. <laughs> How much do belts matter to you? Belts mean everything um, to me. I'm not going to lie, but uh, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to realize that the big fights and big money fights um, is just as important. Yeah, I mean, when you get to a the big money fight level, I don't think fans really care. What belts at the line or what's at stake? Exactly. Like a Canelo 24 Floyd and stuff <laughs> like that. That's like next level stuff. So fans want to see that more than they want to see four or five belts. I mean, four belts on the line in the undisputed match or stuff like I, that. So. I couldn't tell you. I, I went to 20 plus Floyd fights over the years. I could never tell you what belt was on the line for any of them. It None of it ever <laughs> mattered. It didn't. It never, it, nobody ever give a shit, you know? Just, yeah, especially uh, once he got older, it's like he just, you know, he was just fighting and be fighting. And it didn't mm-hmm. matter about belts, nothing. It just was, you know, greatness. Mm-hmm. You are a young fighter, but chasing greatness yourself at this stage of your career. Second fight for you at 130 pounds. You're jumping right into the deep end in a title fight. Third fight. Third, Third. fight. Sorry, Actually, my apologies. No, 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 not even. This is my fourth fight. At 130? Okay, I thought you defended your title before. All right, well, early in your 130-pound run here, you're jumping right in against Jamel Herring. Um, why was it important for you to to get this fight right away? I mean, um, 
I just feel empty without a belt at the end of the day. Like, I feel like <laughs> uh, fighters running around here with belts and stuff like that, and I can't just go to a new weight class and not have a belt. So uh, that's really one of the main reasons. So it didn't matter who it was, as long as it was the champion, and that's good with me. How do you feel at 130 compared to 126? Um, I feel, I feel like at 26, I was a lot bigger than people. So at 26, uh, even when I fought Joe Way, it was kind of like I was fighting a good fighter, it's a solid fighter that everybody finally get to see that he's a good fighter. But um, I felt bigger. Like, I felt like a bigger fighter. And um, as when I moved to 130, now I started to feel like the smaller guy. I'm the smaller guy in the ring. And uh, even with this fight, I feel like Jamel Heron is naturally the bigger fighter. And which, like, yeah, I realized uh, that really don't mean too much, though, when you're skillful. We got fighters like me. Um, skills is going to carry me to these weight classes, and uh, I should be straightening any weight class that I get into. I spar with you- guys like Regis Progray, and he walks around super big, <laughs> but I, I could sit there and work however many rounds he want to work with him. So um, weight don't really mean nothing. What's, uh, what's sparring with Regis Progray like? Uh, it's actually fun. I'm not going to lie. It's real fun. Uh, he's like a super tough dude like <laughs> yeah. but like when you watch his last fight I was thinking like he looked kind of like sharp and boxing and stuff like that but then you get in the ring and you spar him it's like he just you know he coming to fight like he he not gonna try to be real skillful in there especially not with like somebody like me I'm a real skillful fighter and uh, I don't know how to set things up um, mm-hmm. break people break people down and stuff like that but with him it's like he's coming in there to make me work like he got to make me work just so it could be that kind of uh match and he kind of bring the best out of me too because once he make me work now i gotta work and it's like you know it's gonna turn into a street fight at times turn into a fight at times and i mean it was fun it was real yeah, fun as big as jamel is and he's a bigger 130 after coming down from 135 i would imagine uh no one's as physical as regis progray as far as i can tell in these lighter weight classes he's a bull in a china shop sometimes Nah, he, nobody is physical as him. He's real tough. Like, he's a, uh, and he throw you off. It's like, you know, you expect, like, a, a black fighter to be a boxer, but he comes in there, he's throwing <laughs> nonstop punches and bringing his weight and me and him wrestling and, you know, we fighting and last couple of rounds we digging and, and you know, it's, it's great work, man. Yeah, you got to learn a lot from experience like that. I mean, a, a championship guy who, who fights that style. Yeah, I, but I've been doing this. So you got to realize I've been sparring with Crawford and mm-hmm. I've been working with these kind of fighters. So, um, like I said, that side stuff don't really play too much of a part. I thought it was interesting at the press conference to announce this fight a little while back. You you told everyone, like, listen, Jamel and I are not friends. Like, we are, I don't know where this narrative came from, but uh, he's a cool guy. We share some mutual acquaintances, but we are not friends. What What is your relationship with Jamel Herring? The thing is, I don't got no beef with him. Like, I ain't really beefed out with him. But at the end of the day, they try to make it seem like friends become enemies. And <laughs> I just did disagree with that because, like, that never was my friend. Like, I didn't call Jamel, like, yo, let's, uh, you want to fight? Or, like, how we going to do this? Or, like, it didn't matter to me. It was like, put Jamel in front of me. Let's fight. Let's mm-hmm. see where this goes. Like, so I never really looked at him like my real friend. I just see him around somebody I see around in the gym and stuff like that, but never was my friend. 
do you prefer kind of having beef with guy uh, that you're fighting, whether it was Joette, you know, that which was deeply personal at the time versus, um, you know, someone that even if you're not friendly with, you're, you're not unfriendly with either. Nah, I really don't care. At the end of the day, I'm not going to be nice with anybody that I'm fighting. If I sign on the dollar line to fight you, I feel like um, it's war. At the end of the day, you got to go in there with a war mindset. I'm not going in there to smile with you, touch gloves, none of that. It's, we're going to touch gloves and begin the fight because we have to. But other than that, I'm not going in there to be friends with anybody. His team, which you acknowledged, Bo Mack, uh, the people in that Omaha gym, they know you pretty well. You've been there a lot. Do you look at that as being an advantage for Jamel Herring? No, because I know them pretty well, too. Mm-hmm. I know everything that they're doing right now. I know uh, when he work out. I know what workouts he's doing. I know they didn't switch nothing up. But even when I watch what they post on their stories, I'm thinking in my head, like, it's the same thing mm-hmm. I was doing my last camp. So... At the end of the day, we, we both know each other. And then you got to realize I'm used to going against Bo Mack. When I go in the gym and I spar with guys, Bo Mack got 100 different guys that he want to test out to see how good they are. And he going to use me as a measuring uh, stick. And I get to always beat up on Bo Mack fighters. So I'm used to it. <laughs> I'm not going to so, lie. So this is just another Bo Mack fighter for you to beat up on. Yeah, it's basically the <laughs> same thing as, you know, when I'm in the gym sparring with Bo Mack fighters and I'm beating them up and he's screaming at them and, uh, he walk away from the corner like he mad and he don't want to coach them no more or whatever. Or even the guys he be sending home, like he be fighters he bring in. And once I spar them, you never see them again. Like I promise you, it'd be fighters like that. So at the end of the day, it's another day in the gym uh, come Saturday night. So Herring impressed a lot of people with his win overseas against Carl Frampton. Did he impress you with that win? No, not at all. I wasn't impressed with that win. Um, I was more impressed with the Edo win than the Frampton win because of the fact that Frampton is a small guy. Like, he's a little dude. He's a guy that came from 118, and weight class is that low, and then coming up to 130 pounds to meet Carl Frampton, who's naturally a 140-pounder. Like, he fought 141 in the Olympics. Like, he fought 35 damn near his whole career. Then he's moving down to 130 once he got with Bomack in them because, you know, he's trying to be the bigger guy and bully all the smaller guys. But um, that's how I look at it. I looked at it like he, he was just a bully in that fight. He fighting a little dude, and he took advantage of what was presented. Do you expect him to come out on Saturday and try to bully you? Yeah, I do. I do, but at the end of the day, um, I, I ain't never been scared of no bullies. <laughs> like, I ain't got that. That's not in me. So, I mean, um, you know, I've been, like I said, I'll be sparring with big guys who try to bully me all the time. Like, even, you feel me? I, we just talking about Regis. Regis is a great fighter. But just being in the ring with that caliber of fighter, sparring with him, and then going to fight Jamel, I'm not too worried about him coming in there to try to bully me. You know, you, you have, you know, the, the world title, the, the Olympic silver medal. You've got a lot of, 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 of skill, obviously. Do you feel any pressure to be more entertaining at times in the ring when you're fighting? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Um, but sometimes I am. Like, um, you can't, like, take stuff away from me. Um, when I brought boxing back, I stopped it, um, that dude with a body shot. Even mm-hmm. watching that whole fight, I looked super sharp. I did my thing. Then after that, uh, I went in there with Toka Khan and I chased him around the whole fight. 
ain't like I was backing up, playing it safe. I chased him around the whole fight. He held on to me and so did whatever he could to survive the whole fight. So um, I had one bad night where, you know, I decided to box and I wasn't feeling as good as, feeling as sharp as I usually am. And I took the easy road and said, I'm going to just take my win for the night and and, and we're going to move on to the next. And, you know, fans, everybody go crazy and they complain and everybody make this crazy stuff up. Even Tim Bradley who throws me off that he was a, a fighter before. He started to make me think he was he was, he was, he was not a, a fighter, and I literally watched his whole career. So, mm-hmm. like, it's weird with Bradley. Like, he sit there and talk, all that crazy stuff. But two fights ago, he wanted to put me on his pound-for-pound list. It don't make sense to me. Like, how do you want to put somebody on your pound-for-pound list? When I'm telling you, I don't even think I'm a, I should be in a pound-for-pound. I haven't proven myself yet. This man telling me, no, you are. You are skillfully that good. And duh, 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 duh. Then the next fight, I put him to sleep. And I'm a boring fighter. And now he's talking bad about me on air. And, man, these, I, don't, I don't know, man. These commentators and that used to be fighters throwing me off, man. Did it bother you more that it came from a uh, former fighter? Yeah, it bothered me more that um, it came from Tim. Just because of the fact that I know he was a fighter before and even some of the stuff he's saying on air like uh talking about ticket sales and all that kind of stuff like he was just this big star like I'm confused I never knew Tim Bradley was a big star I think even I I don't even think right now like we go outside and we ask the normal person right now who is Tim Bradley nine times out of ten they'll tell you the commentator for ESPN Mm -hmm. he probably got more looks at being a commentator than he was a fighter. So um, people won't hate that I say that, but I just got to be real about certain things. And he can't sit there and talk bad about somebody else when he wasn't um, doing even some of the stuff that he was saying. I've seen some bad nights with Bradley, uh, with Devin Alexander and uh, a bunch of people. So we, you know, like I said, we're going to keep it um, player, but it kind of disappointed me a little bit looking at Tim, say all the things that he said being that he was a fighter and he'd been in my position before. You know, as you, when guys come up and wait, you know, sometimes the natural growth as you're experiencing makes them a little bit stronger. I mean, I remember calling the fight for Jojo Diaz over the summer and I didn't think Jojo was going to be good at 135 at all. And then he, I look at him and he's like, wow, he looks really comfortable at this weight. I mean, do you feel more comfortable at this 130? How do you think that's going to impact, you know, kind of your strength and power? I think it will. I think that, uh, as I've been feeling, even in my other fights, that I feel good at 130. Um, 130 is more my weight, and I feel a lot sharper, stronger, uh, a lot more physical. I think that uh, it's going to carry over uh, in this fight with Jamel. So everybody's going to see October 23rd. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a chance in the next year or so to to collect those titles, to do some big things at 130. One of the potential opponents would be Oscar Valdez. Do you look at Valdez differently in the aftermath of that positive test? Uh, yeah, I do. I think that um, that wasn't fair the way that they carried it. And uh, I don't think that, that if that was me, I think that I would be, I would have like a way harsh punishment. But um, it is what it is at the end of the day. When we end up fighting, I'm going to make sure I test him a lot during that camp um, <laughs> as much as I could. <laughs> so that way we know he's not going to cheat me and he's not going to get away with cheating with me. So. 
I got gotcha. you. Well, Shakur, it's been fun watching you rise the ranks, man, since uh, 2016. Looking forward to seeing you fight against Jamel on Saturday. And, uh, you, you know, you, you are bothered by Tim Bradley's criticism, but you tell me my scorecards suck all the time. So it's it's you're cool with uh, non-boxer criticism, right? Oh, yeah. Now, your scorecards is bad. I'm not bad. <laughs> 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 you, got, you got some bad scorecards. But, you know, you're know, you going you, you to get better. You know, you just, you know. You're going to get better as you keep going, man. Every day in the gym, Shakur. Every day in the gym. Good to talk to you, man. Good luck. Good talking to you, too, man. That's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Keith Eidek and Shakur Stevenson for joining the show. As always, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you download podcasts. And I'll see you next week. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary.